All right, today's guest on our podcast is Dr. Shane Criado. Dr. Criado is a board-certified integrative psychiatrist, sports psychiatrist, and sleep medicine doctor currently based in Chicago. He works at the Amen Clinics where he works with SPECT imaging and cutting-edge strategies for brain health and mental health. He also works with athletes on mental health optimization as well as sleep strategies for performance enhancement. He is on the psychiatry panel for the NBA Players Association's Mental Wellness Program, is a member of the board of the International Society for Sports Psychiatry, and works with the PGA Tour in Europe. Dr. Criado is also the author of Peak Sleep Performance, the cutting-edge sleep science that will guarantee a competitive advantage that is available on Amazon and Kindle. This book equips the readers with the sleep strategies of the greatest athletes in the world so that you can boost your brain health and performance in all aspects of life. For updates about the book, free sleep tips, as well as special offers, follow at Peak Sleep Performance on Instagram or to contact Dr. Criado, you can go to www.shanecriado.com. That's that's S-H-A-N-E. C-R-E-A-D-O dot com. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right. Dr. Shane Criado, how are you? Great so far. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm good, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very good. So uh, I was reading up a little bit about you. You're, you're a sleep specialist, a sports psychiatrist, and an integrative psychiatrist. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Okay. So with everything going on in the world, um, I was hoping to talk to you about stress. And I know that for myself, there's a lot going on, a lot of worries. And I'm thinking like, how can I manage my stress better? Yeah. That is a major thing in everyday life, but more so with the current situation in the world. So that's a really crucial topic. I know uh, people are always running on fumes if you think about day-to-day stresses or the bigger stresses in life that come at us stuff within our control as well as beyond our control, right? And right now, just to have some basic tools to mitigate that stress might go a really long way in helping us avoid the pattern of more severe anxiety. We all know stress is a part of life. Stress can be healthy. That's what allowed our ancestors to to survive. Otherwise, we wouldn't be alive today. Uh, When does it become dangerous to us. That's when it leads to anxiety, the danger mode, the fight or the flight mode. Why is that dangerous? Well, it it results in a cascade of catastrophe where every aspect of your physical and mental health can be really badly affected, not just for you, but then it's going to affect your relationships, your personal life, your social life, and the way you work. Would you say that stress is is on the rise because I look at my life and I, I try to kind of reflect as much as I can, which believe it or not, is not that often because we're so busy. 
but I, I almost feel like there's more there's with the more distractions, the more kind of stress that there is in life. I don't know if you're seeing uh, a correlation there or not. Definitely. Anxiety is, is, you know, when it stretches too thin, at what point do you just snap? So we're taking on way more mm-hmm. water than, than we need to stay afloat. And so where a lot of people feel like they're drowning, they're sinking. And at what point does it become anxiety, as I mentioned, where it's danger mode, you go from the fight or the flight mode to catastrophization and being frozen danger mode. At what point do you feel defeated, which in turn could fuel really bad depression? So yes, anxiety is on the rise. I'm seeing that in my practice every single day. Uh, the severity of what my, some people might think is, well, okay, I have my ADHD, I may have schizophrenia, but how bad does it become? The severity of those illnesses is increasing several fold. Prescriptions of anti-anxiety medications have spiked 34% in the last few months alone, which is huge. Whoa. In the last four months. Yeah, in the last few months, because of the COVID crisis, anxiety prescriptions have increased by 34%. So as we see this go down the path, yeah, the COVID pandemic hits. Now we have the mental health tsunami hitting us. And the consequences of that will be felt for years to come. If we're not aware of these things, take precautions right now. And the sleep epidemic is also coming along as well, simultaneously with the anxiety. Because if you think about it, sleep is the most vulnerable thing we do. And if you're in danger mode, mm. feeling anxious, it's really going to be hard for you to fall asleep. And then that in turn has that whole cascade of sleep-related problems from everything from inflammation to heart disease and strokes. Well, so... I, I was kind of talking before about how I started reading this book, uh, Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep. Yeah, it's a great book. And I'm reading it and I'm going like, oh my God, I could be in some serious trouble here, right? Yes. So talking about sleep, what, what is healthy sleep hygiene? What does that look like? Ah, so that's, that brings up a really important point and maybe a bit pet, of a pet peeve for me as well because sleep hygiene it sounds like, oh, what are you going to do to keep your sleep clean? But mm. it's so generic, so basic. Sure, there are some useful things within that. Just Google sleep hygiene. There's tons of stuff that comes up. But one size does not fit all. We know that in our clinical practice. right? Eight hours of sleep is not enough for every single person. Mm. Um, naps are not always bad. Another study showed uh, a year or two ago that people who nap have a 37, 34% reduction in heart disease. So naps can be good. Why are naps important? If you know how to do them, if you're strategic about them, it's going to go a long way. So sure, we cannot be extremely generalized when it comes to sleep hygiene, but it's really going down to the basics, Robert. Look at what our biology tells us. We have circadian rhythms. We have sleep and wake cycles. And in our modern lives, we've messed that all up. Uh, Historically, anthropologists have suggested that sleep is polymodal. So multiple periods of sleep in the course of a 24-hour period. So typically, people would sleep in the early evening, early night hours for three or four hours. And they'd wake up in the middle of the night and do certain things and then sleep later on 
late night, early morning, and then maybe sleep in the afternoon as well. And that's basically what our circadian rhythms tell us. The melatonin peaks at night and starts dipping in the middle of the night. Your stress hormone levels, cortisol increase early in the morning to wake you up. It makes biological sense too. Human beings may have had to take turns caring for the, the babies in the tribe. Maybe they had to tend to the fire, make sure predators were kept at bay. And so it's, it's hardwired into our biology. What, what we're doing is we're thinking just because we're modern human beings, we can then get survive on less sleep. And that leads to a really important point. There's a big difference between the quantity of sleep you're getting and the quality of sleep you're getting. So I have some patients who have sleep apnea, who get 10 hours of sleep, they feel awful. They get six hours of sleep, they feel much better. Because in sleep apnea, your airway is kind of constricted, your tongue falls back, and then your brain is suffocating. So of course, the more you sleep, the more your brain will feel suffocated, you wake up miserable. So sleep hygiene is very broad. It's a decent starting point, but it's as simple as going down to our basics. A fixed wake-up time, a fixed bedtime, nice wind-down routines before bed, calming your brain down. Remember what I said about the anxiety and the danger mode and sleep being the most vulnerable thing you do? So if you're anxious, you're not going to sleep because your brain is in survival mode. So those simple strategies are going to be key to just anchoring your sleep rhythms and what you do during the daytime is equally as important for your sleep. So the way I work with my elite athletes are traveling across time zones and, and the way we think about sleep is not in terms of hours when it comes to the quantity, but in terms of sleep cycles. And each sleep cycle is around 90 minutes for most people, unless you have narcolepsy or something. And then some people's brains need five sleep cycles in a 24 hour period. And I'm specific about a 24 hour period because naps are okay if you know what you're doing. Five sleep cycles is seven and a half hours. Six sleep cycles, nine hours. Some of my athletes need 12 hours of sleep, 10 and a half hours of sleep because of their performance, the need to recover between training sessions and games, especially with the NBA season, which gets really busy. So uh, I kind of want to go back to that sleep cycle thing. So you said a sleep cycle is 19 minutes. Does that include like a whole sleep cycle is 19 minutes, but five sleep cycles is six hours and seven and a half hours. Seven. So yeah. Nine zero. So 19 minutes, 90, sorry, 90. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And then what, what's an optimal nap time? Because I, I have a, well, actually 11 month old daughter today. And sleep is a very precious commodity because uh, she wakes up all hours of the night and I'm like, oh my God, like, it's a good thing I love this kid so much because uh, I don't know if I could continue to do it. This is not sustainable, right? So right. I, I, now I understand why parents nap all the time. I'd always come home and be like, why is my dad napping? It's because of me. And, uh, <laughs> right? And, and I'm thinking like, okay, what's an optimal nap time? Because if you nap too late in the day, close to your bedtime, that can affect your sleep. So when's yeah. a good time to nap? 
Okay, that's a really great point you bring up. And first of all, uh, you're not the only one. I have a lot of parents complaining about their sleep being completely messed up. Mm -hmm. First thing I'd say is, okay, before you had your wonderful bundle of joy, uh, <laughs> how much sleep was ideal for you in order to wake up feeling refreshed and not feeling like you needed to catch up and sleep on the weekends? Because right? that's what most people do. So if you think about that, Robert, and you say, okay, I was good on seven and a half or eight hours of sleep uh, most nights, and then now I'm getting maybe five or five and a half hours. You know that certain nights will be rougher than others. But if you can estimate how many hours of sleep you're going to lose any particular night because of your wonderful little infant, then you got to think about how much you're going to need to make up for that, right? So if you're getting six hours of sleep a night or four sleep cycles because you're to wake up and you're used to seven and a half hours of sleep a night or five sleep cycles, you know you're losing out on 90 minutes of sleep, mm -hmm. times one sleep cycle on average, on average each night. So you know you need that amount to make up for. What I'd say is if you have the good fortune of working from home or flexible hours, and you can get away with a 90-minute nap, and you're typically waking up early in the morning, pretty reasonable hours going to bed, then I'd say your nap window, your first nap window will be around 1 p.m. That's what your circadian rhythm tells us. Second nap window or opportunity will be around 4 p.m. But if you're kind of typically going to bed around 10 p.m., the 4 p.m. window is too late for you. So you're gonna want to take that 90-minute nap at 1 p.m. If you say, you know what, I can't do this. That's, that's 90 minutes, way too long. My boss is gonna fire me, he's evil, whatever. <laughs> then you can get away with a 26 minute, 30 minute nap, that's fine with me. What I would not suggest doing is sleeping or napping at irregular times. Mm. Maybe 2 p.m., maybe 3 p.m., that's, that's gonna devastate your rhythms. You're gonna be in permanent jet lag mode. You're not going to be a good parent. You're not going to be a good father or, or a partner. You're going to be irritable, cranky. Your concentration, your productivity will reduce. In fact, a NASA study on pilots saw that a 26-minute nap could boost productivity and concentration alertness by 34 to 54%. So 25-minute naps, amazing. You're going to wake up fresh. 45-minute mm -hmm. naps, 60-minute naps, you're going to wake up from a deeper stage of sleep You'll right. Be right. You'll be completely miserable. Say you need a longer amount of sleep. So either a 25 to 30 minute nap or a 90 minute nap, you get your sleep cycle in. I have a lot of athletes who travel or, or like to party who have endorsement issues. They have to advertise, they have to travel all right. over the place and they have to turn up at a nightclub the next night or if they celebrate a victory. What are you going to do then? Well, you need to realize on average, like say you're a seven and a half hour sleeper or five sleep cycle person. So each week, you're gonna need around 35 sleep cycles. So if you've calculated how many sleep cycles on average you're losing out on, you can make up for that in chunks as long as you're for the most part keeping to a regular sleep schedule. That's gonna go a long way. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty consistent with my clients about the importance of sleep and how to do this strategically, more so because it's not just by the number of hours you're getting, but because of the long-term implications. So if you are getting 
six hours of sleep a night and your brain thing needs eight hours of sleep. Every week you're losing out on 14 hours of sleep. Wow. That's devastating to your brain, to your stress hormones, to your resilience, your ability to deal with stress, the, the whole point of this discussion today. Your productivity will crash, your inflammation will increase, you're setting yourself up for an increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. And I'm sure the, the book, Why We Sleep, Matt Walker speaks about daylight savings time. People lose out on one hour of sleep. And the next day, the risk of heart attacks goes up 24%. And car crashes. And car crashes. Right. 1,400 fatal accidents in this country alone every year because of drowsy driving. Wow. Well, so... Here's the other thing is that in our sleep, because you, you're, you're talking about the sleep cycle and how it's 90 minutes. So a 25 minute nap, is that that uh, non-rapid eye movement sleep that you're getting or is that rapid eye movement sleep that you're getting in that 25 minutes? It's more of the N1 or the lighter stages of sleep. Right. Some people say, you know what? When I take a nap, I have a chance to lie down and go to sleep. I have a really vivid dream. And that's a clue that you're actually chronically sleep deprived. And as soon as you go into sleep, yeah, I know it's scary. As soon as you go to sleep, your brain's trying to drink up as much dream sleep as possible by directly going to dream sleep. So that's, that's terrifying because that's what I have when I have naps. I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, well, we can fix your sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, now going into parenting, and, and, and just a disclaimer, parenting is great for everybody, but it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Like I was having a shower today and I was like, this is great. Like I'm actually enjoying this moment, but this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I've hiked the Grand Canyon. I've done all kinds of crazy stuff. This is the most difficult thing I've ever done. But going into parenting, I had, I, 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 I wasn't getting my rest. I was a weekend warrior. And in that sense, I'd stay up late at night. I would, you know, party or whatever, because I was in my 20s. That would, poor excuse, but I was going into it with a sleep debt. And I think that that's a, a big thing that people don't realize is there is such a thing as sleep debt. And like you're saying, if you only get six hours of sleep a day over a course, like, you know, the hours add up and you can't just get them back, right? You cannot get those hours back. And when we say sleep debt, it's not like the national debt, right? You right. Know, about Oh, it's just a number. No, it means that, that your DNA literally fragments. Your, your telomeres, the end caps of your DNA, shorten with sleep deprivation. If you're a guy in your 20s and you're getting less than six hours of sleep a night, most nights, your testosterone levels will crash mm. by 10%. Okay, so if you're going to age in that crucial metric. You're going to be way more susceptible to weight gain because for every four hours of sleep you lose, your leptin, the hormone that regulates your appetite, doesn't work properly. And so you'll think you need 900 more calories. Your brain essentially shuts down with the frontal, your rational brain shutting down, your emotional brain through the roof, your memory inbox is full, as you know from Matt Walker's talks as well. And so it has huge implications for every aspect of, of your life and health. To put that in perspective, Sleep deprivation is a major risk factor for suicide. You work with clients, you know this to be true. 90% of depressed people suffer from sleep problems. It's gonna, you're gonna have to pay a price if you don't change those ways. So you went into parenting with sleep debt, but if you wanna be a good parent, 
you need your sleep, right? That's right. that's a catch-22. Well, and now working with clients and uh, as a as a clinical counselor, I, I predominantly work with families, so children. Uh, but oftentimes, I find, oh my goodness, I gotta I gotta communicate with the adults here, right? Yeah. And one thing that I, I, I try to check boxes with people now, I didn't come up with this acronym, but I say, you know, you got to check your nests. So it's your nutrition, your exercise, sleep, uh, time for yourself, and then support. But really there's not, it's not like one is higher than the other, but in so often in kids, I'm finding that their sleep is completely haywire. They don't have and you know, this is rich coming from me by the way, but they don't have routine sleep times right? Like with our daughter, we have routine sleep times. But I look at myself and I'm like, there is no routine here. That's an aside. But for children, there's no sleep routine and there's electronics that are getting way too close to bedtime. Does that have a correlation to trouble sleeping electronics? Oh, definitely. And in a number of ways too, Mm -hmm. Robert. So the first thing is the whole light emitting from the device and people say oh well i have this night mode or i have these uh, blue lights blocking glasses they only filter out maybe 50 to 80 percent of the blue light but your eyes are responsive to all types of light not just blue light right it's just that you're most sensitive to blue light so that's going to basically suppress your melatonin which helps you nudge your brain into sleepiness that's one Number two, it's usually something activating and exciting. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it on your phone. And that's going to lead to your brain getting active. And that's going to prevent your brain from falling asleep. So the way we think about insomnia, the way I think about insomnia, is that insomnia is not a lack of sleep, but an excessive wakefulness of your brain. Right. Right? Like darkness not being darkness, but the absence of light. When it comes to these electronics, there's also the dopamine highs, the excitement, the thrills, whether they're playing a video game or hopefully the kids are not swiping on Tinder. But (laughs) no. So when the dopamine hits, it's going to excite you. When the adrenaline surges, it's going to prevent you from falling asleep. So I actually work with my athletes like the NBA who have night games on using neurofeedback, breathing techniques, mindfulness relaxation techniques to bring their cortisol levels down, bring their adrenaline and dopamine levels down so that they can allow their brains to fall asleep. Okay. And I'm saying allow your brain to fall asleep because the harder you try, the more likely you are to fail because that's going to wake up your brain. And Victor Frankl spoke about that in Mm. Paradoxical Intent in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. It works with hyperhidrosis, excessive sweating and social anxiety, and it works for insomnia just as well. Such a great book, Man's Search for Meaning. I've drawn on that one previously. Uh, And you're right. It's the idea of if we force something, the thought of forcing it makes it harder to achieve. And when I work with kids and they say, oh, I can't sleep. I'm like, okay, well, you probably are. And again, this is rich coming from me. You often notice that when you're working with people, you're like, oh man, maybe this is advice that I should adhere to. Anyways, but uh, I'm talking to these kids. I'm like, well, what are you thinking of when you're trying to go to sleep? And they're like, well, I'm so worried that I can't sleep. So I say to them, this is what I want you to do. And this, this works for me. 
My favorite movie is The Lion King. I know that movie like the back of my hand. And I replay that movie as I'm trying to sleep. The whole yeah. scene, like as vividly as possible. Think about the colors, the characters, what they're saying. Before you know it, I'm out. Yeah. And that's what I tell kids. They're like, what's your favorite? You know, maybe it's Friends or whatever. And they play the episode of Friends, something that they know that's super familiar. And before they know it, they're like, oh, I fell asleep. Because our minds, like you're going back to your stress, we're constantly going through everything that's happened. We need to distract ourselves or, like you mentioned in that video on meditation, meditating before sleep, we need to calm ourselves before we go to sleep, right? Yes. That is an amazing topic you raised. And, and kids are, everyone is so outcome oriented. Well, I need good sleep. What's the process involved, right? What are you doing right? What are you doing wrong? It, it, I never tell my clients, well, you're doing all these things wrong. Or you're also doing these things right. These are the things you need to work on because if we're only focusing on the negatives, you're only doing 50% of the analysis. So the other 50% is what you're doing right. So, okay, I asked a teenager or a kid or an adult, you want to sleep better? Why do you want to sleep better? Why, why are you coming to me? What's, what's your buy-in? What are you getting out of it? Well, I'm supposed to get this much amount of sleep or I wake up and my wife doesn't like me tossing and turning early in the morning. And that's a great incentive because divorce is a big disincentive. <laughs> uh, finding out what they want out of it. So it's going to help them with motivation. We know this from motivational interviewing. And I hate them to speak in negatives. Oh, well, I'll try or I can't do this because mm. the subconscious mind doesn't compute the negatives. So trying already tells your subconscious that you're going to fail. Trying tells it you that it's going to be in a barrier you cannot overcome. I like the fact that you're using these, these things that the kids can resonate with. They've experienced in their personal lives to bring them joy. So you're actually replacing the worrying thoughts, the scary thoughts with something pleasant. So not only are you doing that switch, you know, where they say, if you say, don't think about a pink elephant, you're going to, think about a pink elephant, maybe it'll hurt if you're super anxious, right? But then you're also switching and replacing the thought. So you're actually associating the bed, which goes from a place of worrying thoughts, associating it with negative thoughts like that, to positive thoughts, to a place of safety and joy and rest. That's a big thing. That's one of the key components of, of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, where you're having such, we all have busy lives. We're always on our phones, getting messages and calls and emails. So we're really suppressing the background that we need for ourselves. And then when do you have time to yourself? Bedtime. So of course, all those thoughts will rise to the surface. So I work on my patients also having a daily download. Just block off 30 minutes. Consider it your mini vacation, okay? Like your shower, that's your mini vacation. <laughs> You don't need to have a, a week show. That would be great. But we got to work with what we have. So your mini vacation, your daily download, replacing those negative thoughts with positive thoughts, allowing your brain to relax and protecting your sleep. That is your vacation time as well. Your sleep is protected time. And kids especially, not only do, and teenagers, not only do you tell them, how sleep is helpful, but also what it can do to them. And everyone's concerned about body image 
89% of kids who are sleep deprived go on to develop obesity. And there's a big difference between wow. fat shaming and obesity because obesity is a disease that comes with a lot right. of risk, right? Also, your hormone levels will, will crash, your sex hormone levels will reduce, their difficulty building muscle mass, more weight gain, um, smaller brains, difficulty concentrating, difficulty with memory, and growth hormone, which is released in deeper stages of sleep. If you're not getting your sleep, your growth hormone levels will be reduced and kids' growths may be stunted. So your GPA will fall, you will have less stress tolerance, more difficulty interacting with people of the opposite sex because of that anxiety and stress tolerance component. And that's where I get most buy-in from my younger clients, right? What really matters to them? Maybe getting a really beautiful date for the prom or getting to be on the football team or uh, maintaining a, a good physique and a good weight. You don't want your sex hormones to crash <laughs> when you're 18 years old, right? So that's where I get most buy-in from those clients. That's, that's such a good point. Instead of, because, you know, I don't know about yourself, but I grew up in a culture of, you know, you need to do this. And, you know, <laughs> like, it's not, why do I want to do it? What's, what am I getting out of it? And looking at as, as the, you know, the solution focused therapy of, okay, what is it that you want, right? Well, I, I want to make it on the basketball team. I want this X, Y, Z. Okay. Well, let's look at your sleep, right? Because I, I, as a kid, and this is kind of scary, but I had trouble sleeping and you're developing at that time. And we now know, or maybe, you know, maybe we knew then, but I now know, I'll say that that is when our body really grows is when we're sleeping. So what can we do to, cause, cause again, going back to our busy lives, I think about my room and or bedroom and uh, there's lots of books uh, I try to avoid there being cell phones in there. What, how can we turn our rooms into places of sleep versus, you know, something else? What can we do to make it a better place for sleep? Yeah. So just as when I was growing up, the dining table was not for the laptop or books. <laughs> the dining table was for meals only, make sure your hands are clean and it's fixed time every day. Everyone meet at the dining table. Right? That's our family time as well. Similarly, the bedroom is just for sleep and sex. Nothing else. LeBron James keeps his phones and devices outside of his room. So does Ariana Huffington. And some people are more sensitive to, to light than others. Each one is wired differently. Some people are more sensitive to textures than others. And understanding those things will go a long way. That's the first step. The bedroom is a place of safety, sleep. Simple things, dim the lights in the house a few hours before bedtime, because bright lights can impact your ability to fall asleep. Bright bathroom lights, fluorescent bulbs, bad idea. And besides, dim lights are kind of cozy and nice and romantic for you and your partner once you put the kid to sleep. Dim lights, dark shades, comfortable pillows, avoid having pets on the bed, maintain hypoallergenic sheets and bedding, so that's gonna go a long way even if you have Oh, yeah, I just have a stuffy nose. Usually, well, maybe it's a mild allergy or sensitivity to, to the sheets. And have a fixed time when it comes to winding down. Like you're brushing your teeth, maybe a warm shower, relaxing music, a non-stressful conversation with your partner, 
like reflecting. <laughs> All those things will go a long way, your daily download. That's what you can do to keep your bedroom safe. Now, there's a whole other conversation about what the ideal kind of mattress and pillows and all that stuff are, you know, if we have time and if we have to dive into that, because the most expensive mattresses with all this fancy memory foam and stuff are not necessarily the best for you. Mm. Coming to positioning and bedding, your sleep position is gonna go a long way as well. Most people sleep best on their non-dominant side. So if you're right-handed, your non-dominant side is your left side. And the side position works way better for your airway too, because we as human beings have less cartilage, less rigidity in our airway front to back, because we have the gift of phonation, speaking. Some of us can sing. I'm not one of those people, unfortunately. <laughs> but when you're in the supine position on your back, the effect of gravity, the tongue falling back, it makes it more likely for your airway to be obstructed. So those of you that snore, you may notice that, that your partner tells you, turn over or nudges you, pokes you in the belly with their shoulder because it's much easier to breathe on your side. The other thing is, if you look at the subconscious mind and sleeping, the most vulnerable thing we do, if you are on your non-dominant side, that, sleep, that leaves your dominant side ready to fend for yourself. Right. You. And the fetal position is anyway a position of safety that we practice when we're in the womb. So those things will be the first steps when it comes to having a safe, comfortable, and sleep-friendly bedroom. See, I, now I, I always heard that sleeping on your back, like, you know, you're facing the ceiling was the best way for your spine. Like, like that's what I had heard. And then sleeping face down obviously is the worst for your spine because of gravity. But you're saying that sleeping on your side is the best for a deep sleep. Sleeping on your side is best for sleep unless you have frozen shoulder right. on that side or yeah. some other arthritic issues. And sleeping on your back is could be actually detrimental to your spine depending on the kind of mattress you have. Mm. Before I went to med school, Robert, I did physical therapy. And in physical therapy, we trained that ergonomics is really important. So if your spine is aligned in the sideways position and you have the right kind of mattress and pillow, then you're gold. If you're lying on your back and you have the wrong kind of mattress, if it's too soft or too firm, it's going to really cause you more back problems, more neck problems. Wow. I'm, thank you for that advice because all this time I've been like, I need to sleep on my back. I need to sleep. <laughs> but I'm more comfortable on my side anyways. So what question for you, what made you get into this? Because you said you started in physical therapy and now you're training NBA pro athletes. What, what got you into this? right back in physical therapy. I'd be spending an hour or so with every patient and deal with young and old and, and athletes who were injured. I'd realized that they were getting cut from teams, their careers were ending. They were absolutely miserable. And I realized that their identity was closely linked to that role as an elite athlete because you commit to it completely as we should do any, for anything we're passionate about, whether it's raising an 11 month old or being in a, in a healthy marriage. Because we're, guess what? Whether we like it or not, we're committed to life. We're all going to die. Right? Yeah. Right? 
and we need to figure out the best way forward. So I started off with that, with that. I realized that I wasn't able to help my patients in every way I could because I was a physical therapist. I didn't know much about psychology, psychiatry. So I got into med school and I did psychiatry and got into really got interested in sports psychiatry, working with elite athletes, mental conditioning, coaching, team dynamics, um, risk assessments, therapeutic use exemptions. And I kind of focused initially for the first year in, in, in sports psychiatry on substance abuse in athletes. And mm. we all know that with any major psychiatric disorder, including the family of addictions, we have a huge overlap with sleep issues, depression. It's always one of the main criteria when it comes to those psychiatric criteria to diagnose somebody with a condition, bipolar disorder, uh, psychosis, depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, addictions. And we also know that through better sleep, your rational brain will be more in control, healthier, less impulsive behaviors, less addiction potential, less cravings if your temporal lobes are healthy as well, the sides of your brain. And I realized there was a huge deficit. I was trained in one of the best programs in the country in psychiatry, but everyone was, oh, I have a sleep problem. You're some Ambien, you're some Trazodone, you're right. some Onopin. We know what happened with Jordan Peterson trying to get off benzodiazepines. It devastated his life for several months. Thank goodness he survived. And those meds can lead to dementia as well in long-term studies. So you don't want to do that to your brain and just medicate the problem. And I realized there was a huge dearth of knowledge when it came to sleep strategies. So I decided, you know what? I'm a sports psychiatrist, psychiatrist is all good, but I need more, I need to learn. That's what we started off with today, didn't we, Robert? We're right. all learners in this together. We're sharing, we're growing together. That's, that's a, an amazing purpose to have. So I did sleep medicine and great training program again, but they were not fully focused on insomnia. They said, oh, that's more of a primary care issue. Mm. I said, oh no, this is, this is what we need to focus on because over $200 billion of lost revenue in this country alone, major accidents, fatal accidents, uh, work productivity, and the cascade of catastrophe with sleep deprivation leading to inflammation, DNA fragmentation, cancer risk, heart attacks, strokes. I said, no, I need more information. Finished my sleep training and then published my book this year because even now in the elite athletes, the best teams in the world, Olympic teams, there is no consistent consensus. There are no consistent guidelines on sleep strategies. So in, with any athletes, they're working on controlling their nutrition, every calorie consumed, their mental conditioning, they're preparing. They're not waiting until they have an anxiety attack and then say, okay, maybe I have an anxiety issue. No, they're being proactive. But sleep has been falling through the cracks every single time. And so I said, why wait for a problem we know what sleep can do to your performance, right? So that's the athlete buy-in, like with the kids and the teenagers. These are the facts. The facts are that you're twice as likely, almost twice as likely to be injured if you're a high school athlete, if you're sleep deprived. So you're more at risk of getting an injury through sleep deprivation than overtraining. Your hormone levels will reduce, your reaction times can reduce by over 300%. Your career expectancy is shortened. So MLB players, their careers have actually been shortened according to other studies. And what's the flip side? Well, power output can be boosted. 30 minutes of a, of a nap can increase your tennis serving accuracy 
by 4%. If you get more than that by over 20%, your standard serving speeds can improve, your, your run times can improve, um, your, your swimming times can improve. We've seen that in, in documented studies at Stan Stanford especially. And that's gonna make the difference between you making a team, not making a team. That's gonna make a difference between you standing on the podium at the Olympics and not qualifying. So even 1% improvement in each of these domains, 1% improvement in the quality of sleep, 1% improvement in the quantity of your sleep, 1% improvement in nutrition, 1% improvement in power output. It will have a huge impact on the long-term, like the Beijing Olympics, 2008 Olympics. The difference between the person who came in fourth place and, and the gold medal in the women's uh, running, the 100 meter sprint, was it, I believe, uh, a hundredth of a second or something like that. So that's going to make a huge difference in the long term. These small things add up. Wow. Well, and you're talking about overtraining and sleep deprivation. I mean, you know, sleep is where our body recovers because we're not, it's our chance to relax. And, and you talked about it in that meditation or in that video about meditation uh, and how you should meditate before sleep because sleep is the ultimate meditation. Yes. Right? And uh, again, this is going back to our original point of stress and anxiety. So we're so stressed out about getting a good night's sleep. And I know that we kind of talked about this with the, the daily download. How can we set ourselves up for success? What are some kind of concrete strategies that anybody can employ so that they can set themselves up for a better night's sleep. Like I'm thinking about rules that they okay. can follow. Your daily download, your to-do list you need to write down maybe before dinner, mm -hmm. your worry list for things within your control before dinner, and having a nice wind-down routine, keeping your bedroom safe, quiet, dark, protecting that time. Approaching sleep time as, oh no, it's going to be one of those terrible nights. I hope it isn't. But hey, this is my mini vacation time. Woo! Now I'm going to enjoy my sleep. It's going to be great. So going in with that attitude of, oh, it's been a long day, work, clients, uh, my, my amazing family, I got to do all these chores and things, and now this is my protected time. Go in with that attitude, understand the basics, fixed wake-up times most days of the week, figure out how much, how much sleep, sleep cycles you think your brain needs, Get in that comfortable position, do the meditation, clear thoughts, replace your negative thoughts with positive ones, and then it'll allow your brain to synchronize gradually. Now, some people may have a serious sleep disorder or a serious mental health issue, like severe anxiety, severe depression, PTSD. Sometimes PTSD is associated with the bedroom. Then it's understandable that they may need more than just core strategies like this like supplements, maybe working with a counselor, therapist, a psychiatrist, maybe medications could be extremely helpful in those situations. So once you get the basic foundational stuff right and your brain needs a little help with sleep, please seek help for the right kind of help. That's, that's a really good point. I mean, I never thought that for some people, and it's so obvious that you bring it up, that who suffer with PTSD or who have PTSD. I try to avoid, um, you know, 
value judging what an experience is for somebody. But for people who have PTSD, it might be around the bedroom because of something that happened there. And you said that therapy is, is what we sometimes need. Yeah. And it goes back to sleeping the most vulnerable thing you do. And if right. you're suffering from PTSD, if there's been trauma, you don't want to be vulnerable anymore. You want to always be on guard. And then you're going to be hypervigilant, always looking out for the next danger, maybe at nighttime, maybe if you live alone, maybe if the trauma was around the bedroom when you were growing up and something bad used to happen to you. Each one's experiences are different. However, what is consistent is the pattern of your brain going into danger, fight, flight, frozen mode. And then the pattern of avoiding bedtime, dreading the night because of bad stuff, then dreading sleep because of the nightmares that can be associated with PTSD. But I always work with my patients who have PTSD and insomnia and reminding them that the more sleep you lose by trying to stay awake as long as possible, the more your brain is going to catch up on dream sleep. And if you're in right. catastrophe mode, worry mode, danger mode all the time, it's more likely that you will have nightmares that are more frequent. I also tell people that if you have occasional nightmares, the research shows that it's good. Occasional nightmares are good because your brain is kind of practicing for any perceivable threat. And that they found that people who have occasional infrequent nightmares, it's not a nightmare disorder. They can actually react quicker, better to stressful situations. So nightmare disorder is bad if it right. disrupts your sleep, makes you want to avoid sleep, wakes you up from your sleep and you're in danger mode and difficulty falling back asleep regularly, then it's a disorder that needs to be adequately addressed. So, and you bring up an interesting point because uh, dreams, I, I, I mean, I find dreams fascinating because to me, it's almost like my, my mind is trying to process what is going on, right? And oftentimes I have dreams and I'm like, you know, oh, why can't I go back to where I won the, uh, the lottery there or whatever, <laughs> right? Uh, what is the difference between, like, why do we have dreams versus nightmares? That's a very good point. And I've been fascinated with dreams as well. During my psychiatry training, there was this psychiatrist who was from Harvard who had been a psychiatrist for over 40 years, psychoanalyst guy. And we'd have dream sessions every week with a few interested trainees, talk about their patients' dreams, their dreams, their friends' dreams, and do a deep dive into psychoanalysis, understanding our dreams. He based his principles off Carl Jung's work with dreams, as well as he, him publishing a book on dreams as well. Uh, Jim Gustafson is his name, great guy. And dreams are important, as we said, when your brain, your hippocampus kind of generates dreams. So the dreamscape by one side and the other side, the, the time aspect, and it creates the web of the dream. And your dreams will be stuff that you've been thinking about during the day or things you're anticipating the next day. Mm -hmm. And then also aspects of the bedroom environment while you're asleep. So if there's a ceiling fan blowing breeze in your face, you might feel like you're on a roller coaster ride with the wind in your face or what happens when you dream about spilling a glass of wine? <laughs> you need to wake up right then, right? Right. Because something may have happened in bed. So when you think about 
what our brains are rehearsing. It's the same kind of stuff that's gonna happen in your dream sleep because you're consolidating your dreams, you're, you're consolidating your memories. If you're thinking negative thoughts, dangerous thoughts during the day, you are more likely to experience nightmares, bad dreams at night. Now sleep is really important as we mentioned earlier because then your brain will get adequate amounts of dream sleep, not too much dream sleep if you're sleep deprived, so less nightmares, but also with adequate sleep, you're more aware, more resilient to when it comes to dealing with those reminders, when it comes to dealing with the flashbacks mm. and dealing with the hypervigilance. So your brain is gonna need sleep to recover and deal with PTSD the best. We know that exposure therapy and other therapies that are helpful for PTSD can also disrupt your sleep temporarily because it activates the brain. You think about all these bad memories. That's why sleep training is crucial when it comes to PTSD, since we are on the topic of PTSD, because even before you go into those kinds of therapies, if you're getting an hour more sleep every night, that's still a win. That is a huge thing that's going to make it easier for you to practice and incorporate the strategies you're learning in therapy. Right. Integration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly. So go now reflecting on my own life and sort of the, like, I, like, I, I can't even fathom what my sleep debt is. I'm sure it's in the hundreds of hours. Is there a point when just the whole clock resets or are you always going to be having a sleep debt? Well, at a certain point, you need to make the changes you need for yourself. It's not like you're going to die the next day if <laughs> overall sleep debt over the last 20 years is now 200 hours. That's not going to happen unless it's a sudden heart attack that's related to chronic sleep loss. Sure, that's an extreme. But for the most part, if you want to say, okay, I'm done scaring myself silly. What do I do about it now? What's within my control? Sleep, what's so great about sleep is that, yeah, it's linked to everything from heart disease to cancer to strokes to sudden death. But the great thing is that it is modifiable. Mm. And it can actually influence your genes through epigenetics. So you can't blame your genetics. It was just the way I am. <laughs> sleep can influence your genetics too. So start now. Start by, first of all, approaching with an attitude of curiosity as a seeker, a learner, rather than dread. Okay, this is something that I want to commit to fully, like I'm committed to life fully, or my partner, or my kid. This I need to do not just for myself, but for all of my loved ones as well. Let's figure this piece out now. I don't need chemotherapy, it's not a cancer, but sure, the WHO says that sleep loss, shift uh, work disorder is a probable carcinogen. Now we know that. So let's work on what we can do, simple strategies, build on your success. Don't just approach sleep when there's a problem. Why are we going for annual checkups? Right at the age of 40, you're supposed to go for an annual checkup. Why aren't we reassessing people's sleep at that point in time? If we want to be preemptive about all these illnesses, and look at the total cost to the economy, mortality, morbidity of the top causes of death in this country. What are they? Accidents, cancer, heart disease, um, dementia among the, the, the top 10, all those are linked to sleep problems. So imagine the I, impact we could have, and that's the whole purpose, that that's my purpose now, 
to not just tell people about sleep, but have them understand, sure, there's one thing to be scared, but you have all the tools you need, not just to deal with a problem, but create solutions right here and now. And that's why I wrote the book, because I want every single person to have the skills I use with my elite athletes to optimize their sleep, to weaponize their sleep, to improve every aspect of their performance. So on your book, it's Peak Sleep. Uh, what's the subtitle? Peak Sleep Performance for Athletes. Mm-hmm. A cutting edge sleep science that will guarantee a competitive advantage. It's not just for athletes, but it's all the tools I use for my, my elite athletes for anyone to access. This is not rocket science. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> this is simple stuff. And once you establish these routines, your brain will synchronize. Your brain will regulate your sleep and your wake hours beautifully. Well, I, 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 I love how you say that this isn't just something for pro athletes. This is something that we can all tap into. And we all have something that we can benefit from. It can, it can increase our creativity. Uh, it can make us kinder, right? It certainly improve our health. Um, you know, I, I think of myself when I have a poor night's sleep, I have to be very careful because, uh, you know, I'm like Oscar the Grouch, right? Yeah. So <laughs> that's exactly what happens when you're jet lagged. You're going to be more irritable. Right. Quick to temper. You're not going to want to problem solve or do algebra first thing in the morning. Your brain <laughs> handle concentration, cannot handle multitasking. So you wake up already running on fumes. You're chasing the day. You might, you might rub your wife the wrong way by saying something bad or set things off at a meeting. You're not going to be with it. It's going to infiltrate every aspect of your life. So sleep is your, the best meditation, as the Dalai Lama says. And we can use sleep as your anchor to stabilize your rhythms, to deal with situational stressors so that stressors are just that, stressors that you have the tools, the wherewithal to understand, deal with effectively rather than them consuming you and being the catastrophe that you're trying to avoid. I like that. Well, and and I'm thinking that another huge, another salient point that you made is that we, we gotta, we gotta routine our lives a little bit more because if we are disciplined, we get a lot of freedom out of being disciplined, but when our lives are chaotic, it's exhausting. Right. And that's just that. So going to bed at a set time and getting up at a set time. Like I tried to get up, I was getting up at 5 a.m., but then I found out that my bedtime wasn't, still isn't, so I'll work on that, doctor, uh, wasn't set. So I need to go to bed at 9 if I'm going to get up at 5. It yes. doesn't matter about if it's summer when there's more light or if it's winter because it's easier to go to bed when it's darker, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. that doesn't matter. We still need to get the same amount of time, Correct. There's a great point. People say I have seasonal depression. Yeah, a lot of them are more sensitive to the external rhythms, the external environment, and so you might have seasonal depression. But if you're actually staying in bed longer and not exercising, not doing the things you need to help heal your brain, making sure you're getting your vitamin D, then you're actually going to fuel that depression. The depression tells you, you know, I always tell my patients, you're going to listen to the chump in your head or the champ. And the, the chump in your head tells you, oh, you don't need to work out today. Oh, it's still dark outside. You can stay in bed a little longer. That's going to mess with your rhythms. You need anchors, fixed wake-up times, wind-down period, and then fixed bedtimes, fixed meal times, fixed exercise times. 
you're protected many vacations. Awesome. Well, so your book, Peak Performance, where, where can we pick that up? Amazon Kindle, it's available there. Uh, if people want to follow me, I have an Instagram account. Thank you for following me today. Uh, Peak Sleep Performance is the Instagram. And if people want to communicate with me directly, reach out to me. They can always go to my website, shanecreado.com, S-H-A-N-E-C-R-E-A-D-O. Awesome. And uh, kind of last question with, with COVID going on, another stressor. Uh, like, and, and you've worked with a lot of teams. What do you find yourself doing at this moment in time? Doing for myself or doing with my clients? For yourself. Oh. How, are, how, are you, how are you keeping good sleep hygiene? Oh, yeah. First of all, we know that if we're working from home, like I'm working from home, everything blends together. Your personal life, your mm. relationship, your, your social life, your, your work, it all blends together. And it can either be a win or it can be a big loss. So what I've done for myself is what I tell my patients is like, okay, this is great. I don't have to travel one hour each way to my clinic. So I have two hours freed up every single day. This is a blessing. What do I always complain about? Like, oh, I never have time to read this book or do this thing or learn this new skill. Well, now what's your excuse? You have freed up 14 hours every week. Now there's no excuse. So when you think about it like that, Elon Musk looks at five minute uh, intervals. And that's, okay, he's extreme. He's a, a very interesting guy. But don't look at your time every day in terms of five minute blocks. But look at it in terms of 30 minutes or hours. And, and that schedule, that structure is going to be key. So what I do is I've kept my, my wake up time. I get to wake up 45 minutes earlier. Great. But I'm always scheduling my patients, my first patient, 90 minutes, at least 90 minutes after I wake up. Because right. the brain needs to wind down. It needs to get to peak performance after I wake up. So my wake up times, I've shifted them slightly, but I'm getting the same amount of sleep cycles that I need every day. Thankfully, I've never really had a problem with sleep. Uh, so it's been really good in that regard. But I have more time. I I'm envious. <laughs> I can help you with that. We, we can solve your issue. Um, I also remind myself and patients, hey, listen, COVID, um, dangerousness in the world right now, those are things beyond our control. What is within your control? You can't change the world. You can't make the pandemic disappear. Things will happen the way that they're supposed to. The serenity prayer, focus on what's within your control. And look at this as a learning opportunity. Sure, a friend is ill or, or there's, someone is really anxious about a situation, they lose their job, be there for them. Be there for them in the time of need because it's gonna remind you of, of the good things going on in your life. Remember gratitude exercises. No matter what's happening, great. I have a fever, uh, I'm gonna stay away from people for two weeks, but I'm still breathing properly. I have a good brain to work with. I have people who love me, people who have my back, there's always things to be grateful for, no matter how bad it gets. Mm. Remind yourself that just as good times are temporary, bad times are also temporary. Everything is temporary. We just got to navigate the waves, ride the waves as best we can. Like the guest house with Rumi, uh, he wrote a beautiful poem uh, that says, well, okay, if something is scary, the, the malice, the fear, the depression, welcome them in, have a seat, 
have a little conversation with them. Okay, that's all you've got? I've been through this before. What else do you have? That's really, that's all you have? I can do better and I can learn from these experiences. Approaching it with an attitude of curiosity as a learner, as a seeker, rather than being in the eye of the tornado. Everyone likes horror movies. I remember when we used to be able to actually go to movie theaters, but I don't want the Grim Reaper chasing me around my house with, with a knife. So if we choose to step outside and say, I am not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings, I just am. And I choose to associate those feelings and thoughts with negative connotations or positive learning experiences. Just as with the nightmares, if it's occasional, great, my brain is practicing, rehearsing stress. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing that needs to be avoided. And then there's a the whole other topic that I don't even want to get into about Carl Jung and the shadow that you need to face in order to become whole. Using those experiences, whether you consider them negative or positive, as all learning experiences as we go through this journey together. That's, you know, so great because, you know, you talk about the shadow and, and this idea of an iceberg. And I think in our lives, because I've, I've wondered, and I'll try not to get too off topic here, but we love drama, right? We love other people's drama and we love helping people through their problems, but it's their successes that sometimes we're turned off like, oh, gee, great for them, you know, <laughs> but I think it's because when other people are suffering or struggling, it kind of takes the light off our own problems. But what we need to do is turn and face ourselves, face the shadow, face the iceberg, right? We just see the peak, but 90% of it, 98, whatever, is beneath the surface. And when yeah. we face ourselves, we'll find that we're less drawn to drama, that we can get a good night's sleep, that we're not getting sick all the time. But we have to have the courage to face ourselves. And your daily download method is a step, is a leap in that direction. You said it. We want to avoid the things that we don't want to face. That's why we busy ourselves. We're mm -hmm. going back to the addictions and the phones and the dopamine hits because we don't want to face that shadow. And when we face it, when we at least look at it in baby steps, what can I fix? What is within my control? Maybe these five things I can fix. Well, oh, that's a bit overwhelming. Okay, what are the two things that I would really like to fix? Maybe I want to lose my, my, 10, my 10 pounds of weight that I gained during the pandemic. And then focus on the process, right? Not the outcome. I need to lose the 10 pounds. What have I done that has changed in the pandemic that's enabled me to gain this weight? Retrace your steps. Focus on what you're doing right. Avoid what you're doing wrong. Stay away from those things. And the outcomes will follow. Awesome. Dr. Shane Crowder, I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much. We can pick up your book on Amazon, Kindle. Uh, do you have an, here, here's another thing. Speaking of busy lives, is there an audio book version uh, available yet? <laughs> I've, I've been asked about that. So I know most of the younger generation, I consider myself younger too, <laughs> you know, millennial, uh, do resort to audiobooks more than, than any other format. I get it. And it's been something that, that I've been wanting to work on. I've been Pretty busy, still, I need to get it done. So no audiobook available yet, but between other commitments and the next books I'm writing, uh, this is the first, uh, this is what we have, the Kindle and the paperback. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and uh, be sure to check that out. Okay. Thank you once again to Dr. Shane Criado for his time. 
and insight. It's definitely left me with a lot of things to think about, not just in terms of improving the quantity of my sleep, but the quality. I love this idea of the daily download, and I know it's something that you can benefit by incorporating into your daily practices. Turn off your technology, say an hour before you go to bed. Have some routines of a set time when you go to bed, a set time when you wake up. I truly believe that not only will your personal health benefit, your body will benefit from it, your mind will benefit, but you'll be able to be a more full person in your daily practices and your relationships. Thank you for listening. Be sure to share this with your friends. Like, subscribe, share, and stay tuned for more. Take care.